Good morning, everyone. Today's uh, reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. If you'd like to follow along, uh, we are on page 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about, your, about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the uh, grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. All right, let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we're praying for these next moments that you would send us your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with the power and the presence of Jesus, that you would minister to every heart, prodding us, comforting us, strengthening us, speaking truth and grace as only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of blood was spilled this past week. And we're stunned by the violence, still stunned by the violence that we've witnessed as a nation unnerved, in fact, by the potential for more. In two separate incidents, police officers shot and killed two black men, first in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and then a day later in St. Paul, Minnesota. The investigations of these cases continue but these incidents immediately tore open old wounds across the country, especially in the African-American community. And they raised fresh concerns about systemic racism in our criminal justice system and the life or death vulnerability of black and brown people in America. And then before you could even catch your breath, it seemed, the next day, a gunman ambushed and shot and killed five police officers in Dallas. It took place during a protest which was by all accounts peaceful, in part because of the good work of the officers there. Five men were murdered in what was a racially motivated targeting of law enforcement. And suddenly it felt as if we were nearing a breaking point as a nation with respect to racial tensions and divisions and violence. And by the weekend, as we were still scrambling for information, 
we were left in a collective emotional state of chaos. I don't know about you, but we felt shock, sadness, anger, fear, and confusion, lots and lots of confusion. Because these matters are complex and confusing. But what are we supposed to do? I want to address that question briefly. In a time like this, what must the Christian church do? First, we must grieve. First, we must grieve. We grieve any and all tragic loss of human life, whether black or blue. Because death itself is an enemy of Christ, according to the testimony of Scripture. In particular, we grieve and condemn any unjust taking of human life, evil acts of violence that extinguish the breath of those who bear God's image. That means grieving, yes, even as we support ongoing criminal and legal proceedings. Not because those processes and systems are flawless, but because to refuse to do so as a starting point only leaves us in a state of moral and judicial anarchy. Further, we grieve and condemn any unjust taking of human life that is specifically motivated by the sin of racism. Whether if that is racism expressed in the form of hateful, personal prejudice, which targets police officers because of the color of their skin, or if it is racism expressed in the form of institutionalized discrimination embedded in a criminal justice system that presumes the threat and criminality of black men. And we grieve our own sin, don't we? Not just someone else's and not just the sin out there. We repent of our own racism. And we also must repent of our apathy and defensiveness and our refusal to love sacrificially. Dear friends, we are a mess, and so we must grieve. Secondly, we, we must grow in wisdom. We must grow in wisdom. Because these are complicated matters. We need to seek understanding. Simply reacting to news and rumors that you hear without any reflection, while emotionally legitimate, yeah, is spiritually defective, insufficient. In times like this, we need to be angry and yet not sin. We need to have a zeal for righteousness and yet exercise the fruit of self-control. And only the Holy Spirit can maintain those impossible tensions in the human heart. And we need more than just information. We also need to learn what to do with the information that we have, which is what wisdom is. And we need to do more than read articles and Facebook posts. 
We need to have real conversations with one another. We need to listen to each other. We need to listen to voices that make you uncomfortable, in fact, as a part of the growing process, the growth in wisdom. Step outside the echo chamber of your social media community and your regular news outlets. Reach out to one another and learn someone else's point of view on these matters, especially those of a different racial or vocational background. Those of us, like me, who are not in law enforcement, need to listen to the hearts of brothers and sisters and their families who are in law enforcement. And those of us, like me, who are not black, need to hear the fears and the pains of our black brothers and sisters, understanding all the while that not all of them will relate to these events in exactly the same way and that none of them represent the entirety of the black experience in America either. I found these words from a pastor in Oakland, California to be a helpful reminder that I wanted to pass on to you. He wrote, for many of our fellow worshipers who are black and brown, the horrific violations caught on camera reveal a reality they have known and know all too well. It hits at the heart. It is not a policy issue, but a personal one. I will not speak for them except to say that those who join in worship with us could choose to worship in all black communities. In those spaces, their grief would be mutual and known beyond words. Multi-ethnic spaces, like in our church, is by definition less empathetic and less secure, even despite our very best intentions. Great good can happen in spaces like ours, but I want to acknowledge that the cost of entry to these spaces is higher for our black and brown members, especially at times like these. So let us be mindful of the questions we ask, the statements we make, and the silence we keep. Make room for emotions that may not be the same as yours. Here's one way you can grow in the sort of wisdom that I'm describing here. We will be hosting a cross-cultural forum in two weeks, sort of an open dialogue about matters of race and being in a mixed community like ours and like our neighborhood. And that was actually already scheduled even before the tragedies of this past week, and so we're grateful for God's providence already to have that on the calendar, but it'll be a good time to process and to dialogue together Please stay tuned and please attend that. Thirdly, we must not only grieve and grow in wisdom, we must also act. In a couple of ways, remembering first of all that acting is praying. Acting is praying. Please pray. Don't forget prayer is action. Prayer is active faith asking God to act. It's action all over the place. So don't you dare forget to pray. In fact, prayer is a form of protest. It is a way of proclaiming that things are not the way 
they're supposed to be, not the way that Jesus wills and intends them to be by the power of his resurrection. In fact, I would like to pause to pray together right now. And if I could lead us as a church, if we could first pray together, I'd like to ask if a few of you could actually pray aloud on behalf of all of us, maybe something that's been on your heart or something that's been freshly provoked on your heart. And then I will lead us in a prayer to close. And if you do choose to pray, if you could do your best to pray audibly so that all of us can benefit from your faith and join in as you pray. If we could, could we bow our heads in prayer?
pray, Lord, for the families of Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, Brent Thompson, Patrick Zamaripa, Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, Lauren Ahrens, for their comfort and healing. God, every life that was taken this week was made by you. We acknowledge that. And the lives that were not valued by the world were cherished by you. And we know that you grieve more than we ever could. And sadly, some of us pray this with weary familiarity. Sadly, some of us pray with detachment or bewilderment, slowly, only slowly waking to the realities that our nation has known in her bones for centuries. We wonder if change is possible. We wonder if there is any way forward that leads to peace as well as to justice. Please hear our prayers. We pray that our congregation would say a clear and active no to the murder of our black neighbors and follow it with action. And may we be awakened to stand alongside all who suffer injustice, especially in our city. And may our congregation also say a clear and active no to the murder of police lives and follow that with action too. May we find a, a way to declare justice and bring change that shames the violent and shows them a better path in Jesus' name. Pray that you would be with true peacemakers who call for justice and that you'd help us not to settle for a surface reconciliation that costs us nothing that you'd lead us into true repentance and restoration. Hear our prayers, Prince of Peace and Righteous One. We pray for our neighborhood and our city and for the generational healing that must happen before life can truly grow. We pray again for our law enforcement officers, protect them and call them to the highest calling of justice. Sustain their courage and comfort the greeting, grieving. We pray for the church, our church, for a godly affliction that leads to repentance. We pray this for the church across Washington, D.C. and across our nation. We pray for power to speak with one voice against all injustice and indignity everywhere. We mourn with those who mourn. And may your spirit give us peace and especially to all those who've lost someone this week. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Hear our prayers in Christ's name. Amen. We must act, and acting is not only praying, acting is also neighboring. Your cross-racial neighborly love on your block and in your apartment building, and in your workplace, how you engage a neighbor of a different racial group really matters. And your bridge building with members of the Metropolitan Police Department in your neighborhood makes a real difference. Weep with those who weep and carry your neighbor's Burdens, Because I'm convinced, as I know you are, that the best way, maybe the only way, 
to learn to love and repent, to learn to overcome injustice and hate and apathy and divisiveness is to share life together, to be neighbors. Face-to-face, sharing meals, sharing stories, and not just having important, hard conversations together, but also laughing together, as growing friends truly would, rehumanizing the stranger. And that happens on porches and sidewalks and homes and playgrounds. As Dr. Anthony Bradley from New York City recently wrote, the call to action is a call to look for the small ways in our spheres of influence in our everyday lives in which racial solidarity, peace, and justice can be advanced. See, because there is a need, of course, to address things on a macro scale like policy and public justice. But too often we use that as our only outlet and means for forward advancement, forgetting the part that every one of us can play and must play, and it's far more local and far more personal than we typically think. And you really don't know what a small local act of care and empathy just might do. I heard of a recent incident, just in the last day, I believe, in which a black woman in another city came across two white police officers in a convenience store. And as you can imagine, after a few awkward minutes, one of the officers courageously turned to her and asked, how are you doing? And she responded, okay, and you, sort of in a perfunctory manner like most of us would. He looked at her then and asked, how are you really doing? Tired, she said. And he responded, me too. Then he added, I guess it's not easy being either of us right now, is it? No, it's not, she said. And then the white police officer then reached out to hug this black neighbor. And they both wept together. You just don't know what the smallest of acts of righteousness care and attentiveness can do for the cause of public justice. Acting is neighboring, acting is getting involved. We should seek out city forums, opportunities for neighborhood dialogue. Here's one way that you can take action today. This afternoon, Churches across our city and region are gathering at 3 o'clock p.m. at Freedom Plaza downtown to stand together for peace and justice. Uh, This is a gathering of churches, Christians in Jesus' name, coming together as a body of Christ in unity. This rally called Stand Up, Make the Covenant is being held, as the organizers have written, in remembrance of the lives lost and in solidarity with the community and law enforcement. It's been spearheaded and organized by local pastors from the African Methodist Episcopal Church, 
together with the support of a wide range of Christian leaders, both denominationally as well as racially. And I want to encourage you to attend, especially if you've been wondering, yeah, I'm praying, but what else can I do? This might be a start for you. You might be the type of person ready to dive head first, or you might be a person that might go more out of curiosity just simply to observe and to learn. That's okay, too. If you want to go as a group, we can metro down together. And so I thought maybe we could meet outside the Columbia Heights metro station on Irving and 14th at 2.15. I'd be happy to ride down with some of you for that 3 o'clock start time. 2.15 in front of the Columbia Heights metro station. I think this is important because this is, again, the family of Christ showing their concern. And it's really important for us to do this, not just as a motivated church in this room, but across churches in our entire city. As Dr. Tony Evans in Dallas recently wrote, when Christians unite, as so many churches did during the civil rights movement, we can bring hope and healing when we as a nation need it most. Please consider coming out. Will we stand together, friends, humbly, armed with compassion and grace and love. We seek ways to express the unity that we in fact share as a body of Christ in this room, as well as the human solidarity that we share across our entire neighborhood and city, as people that share a joint humanity. Shall we stand up, rise up, Stand for our neighbors and stand for Christ. And now for the sermon. Don't worry. This will be brief. More importantly, it ties into what we've been talking about quite nicely. Just one thing, one thing. Because Jesus here is telling us about our worries the things that make us anxious, the things that make us afraid. This past week, I spent a lot of time thinking about those of you who are a wife or husband or brother or father or sister or brother who worries daily that your badge-wearing loved one might not come home safely that night, killed because of the color of their uniform. And thinking about those of you who are a wife or husband or mother or father or sister or brother who worries daily that your black or brown loved one may not come home safely tonight, killed because of the color of your skin. Filled with anxiousness of heart, fears, and worries. Or maybe you're concerned about your own safety, or maybe anxious about the state of our nation, or maybe it's something totally different that's preoccupying you today. You know what? That's okay. Even in a week like today. Maybe you're saying to yourself, what if I can't pay my bills? Will I ever find a husband or wife as I long for? What will I do if I can't find a new job? Will my marriage ever improve? Will I have a place to live next week? What if the doctor's diagnosis is really bad news? Friends, what's on your worry list today? Jesus tells us again and again in this passage, do not worry. And he does not say that callously nor naively, does he? He never makes light of the things that worry us. He acknowledges 
even as he does in verse 34, each day has trouble, has trouble. And he himself, you may remember, was overcome with anguish to the point of sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane as he looked ahead to what he would suffer on the cross, a form of anxiety. He's not just talking about appropriate concerns about life in a broken world, the need for food or clothing or shelter. These are real human needs. But here what Jesus is talking about is worry, which according to Jesus is today's fear of tomorrow's trouble. Today's fear of tomorrow's trouble. Fear that God might not come through. Which is why Jesus describes it as a matter of a lack of faith. Friends, what's on your worry list today? Jesus tells us, do not worry. And he lists reason after reason after reason in this passage why we don't need to be, why we must not be ruled and defined by our anxieties. We don't have time today to go through all of those reasons, but I want to focus on the primary reason that he gives us. The primary reason that he tells us that we don't need to worry, and that is that in Christ you have a heavenly Father. This is the gospel, the good news of God's grace. That if you believe that Jesus lived and died for you, that you're not just in the eyes of God a forgiven criminal, you're his child. That you've been adopted into his family, and now God is your heavenly father. Dear worriers, what does it mean? What difference does it make that God can be called your heavenly father? First of all, it means that God values you. You matter to him, so don't you be afraid. Jesus tells us to look at the birds and the flowers. In verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Verse 28, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith, you a child of the king? And so he invites you to consider those little blue flowers that so often you can see lining our city streets or the little boxes on the sidewalk. And he's, he's asking you to ponder the durability of our alley rats and the seeming deathlessness of city pigeons. who somehow define all reason and human ambition seem to survive with all of their basic needs cared for. If God supplies for every need 
of those despicable creatures. Here's Jesus' logic. How much more will your heavenly Father provide for your needs? Because you're more valuable than the birds, the pigeons, and the squirrels, and the rats. And you're more radiant in his sight than the wild flowers of these fields. You are important to God. His eye is upon you and his covenant love has been irrevocably set upon you. He has not forgotten you. How valuable are you? So much so that he gave up for you his most treasured possession, even his very own son. God values you, so don't worry. Secondly, what does it mean that God is our heavenly father? Secondly, it means that God knows what you need. Because fathers like myself might have the best intentions and the greatest love for his children, their children, but what if he lacks wisdom, as I often do, knowing what's best for that child? What if he doesn't know what you need or what's best for you? And this is where it's important to know and to remember that God is more than just your father, as great as that is. God more than simply values you, as glorious as that promise is. He is your heavenly father. He's unlike me unto my children. He is your perfect father. He knows what you need. Verse 31, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God knows what you need, which is also important to understand, dear anxious one, that he knows what you need better than you do, too. Listen to how the Bible describes how God knows the intimate details of your life and my life. This is from Psalm 139. You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it complete me. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Dear warrior, do you know your heavenly Father holds you by his right hand, knows your every need, and guides you through the darkness even today? God knows what you need, so don't you worry. Thirdly and lastly, God is your heavenly Father, which means God is in control. He's your heavenly Father. This verse 33 reminds us he's a sovereign king. Seek first his kingdom. 
He's a king. Your father has the power to do his will. He's able to do it. He doesn't have just good intentions, and he doesn't just have the knowledge of your need. He actually has power, all heavenly resources to work all things in your life, in my life, together for our good, for our perfection. And this is so important for us to know because at the heart of worry is the illusion of control. Our insistence that we serve as our own God and provider. This is what you might describe, dear child of God, describe as a spiritual orphan-like mentality. You're a child, but you are acting as though you are spiritually fatherless. But no, you have a sovereign king for a father. Does your life feel out of control? Guess what? Your life is out of control, your control, but not God's. As Counselor David Pallison put it, I think helpfully, says, worriers act as if they might be able to control the uncontrollable. That's something central to the problem of worry. Anxiety and control are two sides of the same coin. So are you ready to confess that you cannot control all things? That you cannot actually, in your own power, effect the future of racial justice here in this nation? That we're powerless on our own? That you, despite even your best of intentions, have no power to control how your neighbor receives even your sincerest acts of love and truth. How you have no control even of the way your heart will receive such acts of kindness and of justice from your, from your neighbor. Or any number of struggles, whether health or provision or financial or emotional, that might be plaguing your minds and hearts today. Don't you know your heavenly Father is in control? As Jesus said in Matthew 28, before he departed from this place, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. And to hear the words of Job who confessed to God about God himself I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. In 1 Corinthians 15, where the apostle confesses that Christ will one day destroy every evil power and authority, every principality, every force of evil, and God will put all things in subjection underneath the feet of Jesus one day. One day, Jesus is going to destroy racism. One day, Jesus is going to destroy all abuses of power and all human division and even violence and death itself. That day is coming. And so for today, we live in light of the hope of Christ's return. 
because he gives us even here and now the very power of that resurrection one day to come in full, but now in part. This is your sovereign king. I don't care what, there's our soundtrack, right? Sirens may blare, the news headlines may reverberate with tragedy like it did in last week. Do you believe, dear friends, will you believe Jesus is still on his throne? Hallelujah. And your heavenly Father is watching out for you and every person who confesses Jesus as Lord. This is your great promise. Longing for that day when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. When death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. So that in, even in broken times like these, we can labor and labor with hope. With tears, yes, but also with hope. Because we know how this story is going to end one day. We hope in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Renew our hope, O Savior. Fix our eyes on our Heavenly Father. And help us not to be afraid. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing. going to sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, tune my heart to sing Thy grace. Streams of mercy, Never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mountain fixed upon it, mount of to rescue me. 
time, but did want to pause for a little bit of Q&A in case people had uh, questions or wanted to dialogue a little bit. So if you could uh, ask a question, this is a time for you to interact with some of the stuff that's been shared, especially from the passage we're looking at. Uh, but what Q&A items do you have today? Yeah, Popa. Oh, Cranes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. Yes, I've I've seen a few tragic cases this past week myself. Actually, I, I think he means in general. I think he means generally speaking, it's an amazing thing that without grocery stores and without people taking care of them, wild animals somehow make it work. Right? I agree. I agree. Well, this is where we work with the analogy that gives us. So, yeah. He says, you're not roadkill. In fact, that's, I think, the whole point of it, right? Because you are a child. Other questions? Jonathan, yeah. We'll close with this one. Right. I think the question was Jesus came in a position of weakness, not only uh, individually, but sort of more broadly socially, being born in amongst Jewish people that were literally under oppression before the Roman Empire. So in what ways then did Jesus's ministry adjust, uh, address those social conditions and how can we perhaps respond in like manner? I think we have to be time sensitive in the way that we understand what Jesus did. He always knew that he was beginning a worldwide eternal movement. So if you pay attention closely to how he teaches, he teaches 
in a time-sensitive manner. He's addressing the very first beginning believers of his movement. He's gathering them in with a view to what they one day will be. In other words, as many people have pointed out, if you take his words seriously for what they are, and if we really did live them out, not as a band of 12, and not even as a band of 200 or 2,000, but one day, hundreds and thousands and millions, if we actually did just what Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount alone, that would be an absolute social revolution at hand. And so I think there was a, uh, a, a, a more uh, time-elapsed sensitivity to, you know, Jesus obviously didn't come in run, running protests and mobilizing people in that direction. The centerpiece of his ministry was his cross. But I think where you see his teaching and the life and the model that he brings forward, that there are implications to broader social issues that Christians are called to bring to bear. It's a great question and one that we got to wrestle with. It's a good one, Jonathan.